0: You're listening to War Dogs Podcast. During the Vietnam War, through the hours of darkness, over 500 sentry dogs and their handlers patrolled along the perimeters of U.S. Air Force bases. These are their stories. Here's your host, Tom Shamba. Hello, I'm your host, Tom Shamba. Thank you for listening. If you're a new listener to the War Dogs Podcast, welcome. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you can be notified when a new episode is posted. This morning, we're gonna be fortunate enough to have uh, an Iraqi Afghanistan dog handler uh, who is a new generation, new revolution of Sentry Dog and Canine Unit dog handlers. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, how you doing, brother? Good, how are you? I am fantastic. Well, this is going to be interesting, you know. For me, it's uh, uh, an evolution of sentry dog handlers. So, uh, I've had the the great privilege of of doing about thirteen of these now, and um, I have one that's going to be published actually uh, in December here this month. And I was notified this morning by his wife that he had passed. So it was it, it was an honor to be able to interview him because. He retired from the Air Force. He spent twenty years as a dog handler and trainer. Trained the very first women's trainer or handlers, so he's got a great history. And uh, I was so lucky to be able to capture that. I mean, I knew his health was not well, but uh, we were able to do a good good job and capture it, and, and now be able to put it out there. So it's important. I'm going to be doing another one. Uh, in January of a Korean War vet, a uh, combat veteran from Korea. Uh, he's 94 years old. Wow. Yeah, never told the stories. Uh, he's in my foundation uh, at the Veteran Cemetery. And uh, we were sitting next to each other one day, and I was telling about these podcasts. And uh, I said, well, boy, I'd love to capture your history. And he said, you know, I've never shared my information with my family, my children, nothing. So I'd love to do it. So I'm excited about it. It'll be something I can pass off to his family and, and, and they can share. So hopefully you can see the value of this. You know, your kids uh, will be able to, to get a copy of this. And uh, when they're adults and they're looking back at their dad, and they can see what you've accomplished and, and what kind of real hero you are, that uh, it'll be interesting for them as well. With your six-year-old voice and all <laughs> it's a real girl. There we go. <laughs> so the way it starts out uh what i'd like you to do is kind of give me a little bit of uh when you went into service why how why and how uh did you get in canine because it's changed since i was in uh you could breathe and walk you could get into canine and i think it's very different today
1: uh It is and or it can be. It kind of depends on um, who the kennel master is currently and or trainer at whatever base you're at when you're trying to get into it. When I did it, quite honestly, um, I enlisted late at 26, turned 27 during my tech school. Um, And I did it so late because I was trying um, for five years from 21 to 26 to get a job in L.E., you know, in Southern California somewhere. And for whatever reason that wasn't in my cards, you know, I had some very, very horrible college, Um, no military, no deployments, no nothing. So I didn't bring much to the table, I didn't think. So hence the, um, the journey. The Air Force and security forces. Now, my AZAP scores are all very, very high. The The guy was like, all right, pick what you want. And I was like, I want to be a cop. He's like, no, you don't. I was like, yes, I do. Make me a cop. And I was like, all right, well, here you go. <laughs> and so that's the route I went and I was just going to do four years at the time. I, um, i had done a ton of research and, you know, they've changed it a couple of times since, but the deployment schedules is done off of tempo bands and I was going to be tempo band E so it was six months deployed six months home and I figured in a four year enlistment I'm going to deploy three times get a lot of experience. um, And then separate and bring something to the table. Well, I ended up going to Maelstrom, um, which is a nuke base and all I did there was run um, convoys for three years throwing around nuclear warheads and, um, no deployments. Cause once you're up there, you don't deploy. And, um, I ultimately threw a friend of mine and his friend who went canine got that kind of bug planted in my ear. And I've always loved dogs and everything to do with really most animals. Um, so I went down to the kennels to inquire about it and what i mean as far as like it depends on the kennel master or trainer they were very very lax didn't really make me spend a lot of time there you know um spraying out kennels or catching dogs whatever i did literally only probably a couple days um which wasn't great on that km at the time who did that um but i was serious anyways and i i did my part and i i turned out fairly well (laughs) in the end um but a lot of handlers don't show that dedication. And when you have a KM who um really makes you spend a lot of time and effort just to get your your letter signed off that says you can do this. Um it really does a lot. But after that I um I got approved for my handlers course um right in the middle of the government shutdown in twenty thirteen, I believe but every single person there was got approved because I don't know if it had to do with the shutdown. And I had my class date for 11 months, which is a long time to have something to lose like that. Um, So I had to basically walk on water for a year to not lose it. And um, they kept saying like, Oh, you're going to get it. You're, you're keeping it. You're keeping it. And everybody knew they're like, I lost my class date. They dropped it. Like I lost my retrain. Um, But I kept it. And I went in, um, September beginning September of 2014 um I finished like Thanksgiving I think uh the day before Thanksgiving on Wednesday um and then I uh basically made my way back up to Mausrum I already knew I was going to uh Davis Mountain um in January so basically spent the next month out processing doing a couple more convoys and then headed to DM um where I spent the next six years doing K-9. There was a small break in there. I had my shoulder rebuilt, so that took me out of the kennels for a bit um, because I had a pretty good tear in that. Um, But that's how I got into it. Um, And it's still that same way now, um, but you have to basically get your kennel master letter signed and approved and it can either go- What
0: were you at that time?
1: Well, um, at the time I was a senior airman and I think, yeah, so I was a I was a senior airman at the time.
0: And did you take that dog that you trained at Lackland with you? No, so the
1: Air Force doesn't do that. We are not um, very smart, like other branches, like the Army, where you're going to be, or Marines, where you're, um, and they've changed it since, but like you're an SSD handler, um, and you train with your dog for four additional months, and then you... That's, that's your dog. When need PCS. The dog goes with you. We don't do that. Um, I got assigned my first dog in the end of January of 2015 here at DM. Um, and then uh, when I'd left the kennels the first time for my surgery or whatever, I um, I lost that dog and went to a different handler. actually I went to two different handlers before I came back. And I came back after um, – the day after going through Emory leadership school, which is our, um, NCO PME professional military education school. So when I went back in on April 1st, I was a staff sergeant. Um, and then I was just kind of walking along with the trainer and came at the time, um, watching an individual just perform very subpar with a very seasoned dog. Like the dog that I had was, um, he had three combat deployments under him, um, one of which was to um, a combat outpost. Like he had like legit, legit deployments, not all going to Salim or you know some Gulf State deployment. And he could teach any green handler anything. And this handler was just not working. He ended up um, breaking down and turning in his leash. And my KM and trainer were like. Dude, he's yours. Please take his deployment. Um, so I ended up going that route. It was pretty short notice. I um, I was going to be leaving in a month, and um, that's the route that I went. I uh, picked up my old dog again. And then um, we went to Fort Bliss for our pre-deployment training, and I was there for about two weeks when I noticed he had – um lameness in one of his front legs and um was limping on it, it which kind of abnormal for him um i ended up bringing it up to uh the guy who was running the canine um track of the pre-deployment and he's like man it, it's kind of the weekend it's late are you sure you want to do this you want to take him to the vet i was like absolutely i want to go to the vet this is my dog it's this is abnormal let's get going So he went, they didn't really know what was going on to him, but his condition was deteriorating pretty quickly. Um, The next day, it kind of, uh, the swelling got to be very extreme and then it kind of opened up and started leaking. Um, And they were convinced he had um, MRSA. And uh, the following day, he was, uh, his resting temperature was like 104. He was just completely lethargic. And they're like, you need to get the hell out of here now. Um, so we basically him, me in, uh, one of the cadre there at the course, took him down to, uh, Lackland and I was there with him for six weeks in the ICU and he developed, uh, necrotizing fasciitis. So the flesh eating bacteria, um, ate a pretty good sized hole in his, in his, uh, front leg. And then what else, um, i would say he could have lost his leg and or his life but the team down there were were rock stars at the time and they did a lot of really great things um and i spent it was a it was a long six weeks there and then once that was uh finished i basically took him home i rehabbed him and then i was actually going to separate like i went through like went through taps and was getting out um I gave him to a different handler and um, then 42 days deep into terminal leave, I decided that the civilian life wasn't for me at the time. So I ended up, excuse me, coming off a of terminal and um, re-enlisting. And I couldn't pick him up again because um, he's already with a different handler. And I ended up getting a, um, a brand new green dog that just got to the kennels in January um, so a couple weeks after I'd reenlisted, he got there and the trainer kind of master like, you know, you're, you've been doing this a little while, like he's yours. Like, like take him and run with him. Um, his name was Frankie. I had him for, uh, off and on, but more, more on than off for two years. That's the dog that I deployed with. Um, that's the dog that I did my secret service missions with and stuff like that.
0: Um, I'm going to have you go backwards a little bit. When you went through training, when I went through training, It was eight weeks, sentry dog training, walk perimeters. Uh, They worked on some new uh, sentry dog techniques where they would put a sentry dog every 100 yards and see if they could track uh, an intruder going across the perimeter or coming into the perimeter. But uh, your mission was so much different than ours. Uh, So when you went through training, Your dog was probably already trained right? that you picked up, or was he green? Uh, So during training, the
1: dogs that are down there at Lackland are the dogs that couldn't cut it through one way or another. Um, And there are two different sections. You have your patrol training, which you do first, then your detection training, which you do second. And um, patrol dogs probably just couldn't hack the detection, and so they just kept them in um, patrol and vice versa for the other leg. Um, the patrol dogs are literally beat on every single day for uh, the course now, or then was um, 13 weeks. And um, I mean, it was, I think it was 13 weeks is, it was, it was pretty rough on, at least on the dogs. Um, and you get, you know, some red tag dogs who are very, very aggressive, um, and you get some other dogs who are just not. Um, they try to keep those, the red dogs away from, like, a brand new person just because there's too much liability there. And, you know, as a brand new green handler, somebody's never picked a dog up in your life, you really don't know how to handle it. Um, but so you go through, like, the six phases, um, which is, like, you're your, that's basically what you're doing. You're practicing, you're field interview, um, you're... Your basic in like basic bite work, if you will, um, you know, releasing your dog on somebody, doing a standoff, so recalling your dog, made pursuit, um, escorting, you know, the individual to a car, like just basic law enforcement type um, of stuff. And then you have, which is kind of what you were um, alluding to, your your scout. So we have sight, sound, and scent. So it's basically the same thing. You know, they see somebody, they learn them, and you know they. They proceed that way. Sound is the same thing as well as um, scent. You know, the person's hidden just wearing the the sleeve or the bite top, and you just try to track them that way. And you're just basically um, quartering a field, in an open area, wh- whatever the um, location happens to be. Um, but I can tell you through going through the training there, as well as going back through um, when I went to the trainer a kennel master course the soups course down there and that was an additional i think four weeks um the training is a at least then it felt like it was a few a few generations behind what the dogs are doing um and you can ask questions and i'll further elaborate but when i went through to do the the trainers the soups course they were still doing um protocol training with the dogs. so you know they're Working an explosive dog, walking in front of him backwards, getting presentations in the inverted V. It's like, why do I want to be in the unclear with my dog, You know, who's trained to find bombs, walking in front of him backwards? It just doesn't make any sense. But that's the way they're still teaching it. And then you get to your kennel, and if they know what they're doing, they're going to tell you to just basically brain dump everything you learned for the last um, three months, and they're going to teach you the right way to do it. So I had... Um the staff when I first got here was they were they were all right, but they weren't great. Um but the second rendition of leadership that went through here, um, all the way through current right now is fantastic. And they they have really taught me as well as the other handlers and made it so I'm able to teach other handlers when I was still doing it, active duty um a lot of really really valuable information and it showed when we would go on our secret service missions or when we would do our deployments and training like we literally look like rock stars and everybody else was for the most part they were way behind us and it put us in a position where we're able to you know give advice or train or help you know modify other people's training um to their their advancement which was very very helpful um
0: you do a lot of uh, building searches in training. Um, it kind of depends. You you
1: run through a leg of that down at Lackland, um, and it's it's always like the same thing. You have um, another handler going through the course. You know, sitting at the seam of a closed door with the uh, the sleeve there. Maybe it's on. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just lying on the ground so the dog can get the really strong scent of it. And then, you know, the handler will pull the dog back, challenge the door. They will want to open it depending on the scenario. And then, you know, door is popped, dog is sent in and, and you catch it. Um, it's it's fairly basic. All the training that you get there at Lackland, similar to going through just normal security forces tech school, is very basic. It's very kind of entry level and rough to get you to where you need to be. Um and then it really is based on your follow-on installation to to fine-tune and get you to where you need to be. It's similar to when the dogs are trained. They're, they're trained on plants that are all nose level um, with aids that are like, you know, in a, in a cracked door, nose level right up against it. And that's all you get. Oh, they found C4, they found Semtex, or they found you know uh mdma whatever whatever it is the dog is going through um and it's when you get that dog to your installation after they've sat for months on end waiting for an allocation you know actually to be sent out um and they the dog has basically brain dumped everything because they're um the last dog we got for example she she was a young uh two-year-old male. um she had sat for two or three months um but she was like grossly obese, even her record said that when she got here, because they basically feed the dog morning and night, and they take them for a walk around the kennels down there uh, once or twice a day. And that's all the interaction they get. So by the time they arrive at the installation, they're a green dog all over again, like they have no idea what they're doing. Um, and it's your job to, to fix that. Um, so same thing with the dogs when the handler arrives at the installation it's the trainer shop to get them to where they need to be and how much time you spend on detection work or patrol work or building searches all that is based off of the trainer you know some guys do um kit pull once or twice a month and that's all they're put on their their training aids and they do um one patrol session uh, a month, you know, in each in each category, you know, you have to do your scouts, you have to do your building searches. Um, right before I got out, or right after, they changed from um, from like HQ at at Lackland. They basically revised the um, the training requirements to be the absolute minimum for the dogs for patrol work, because that extra wear and tear on them is very very hard um and they don't have dogs going through very much they're a huge deficiency so we're going to be breaking these dogs early um force them to retire with no replacement behind them so they wanted you to do like if your dog has to have just one scout a month that's it um, one building search that's it you're not doing extra requirements and truthfully if you ever hear about um a security forces member who gets to release his dog on a suspect it's like finding a unicorn it just doesn't happen Um, we're not really utilized in the law enforcement capacity, how we should, um, or just the events don't arise. You know, oftentimes the dog shows up and the suspect is like, okay, I'm going to be compliant, you know, because of what that dog does to the situation. Um, I think big air force recognized that and they decided to bring it back. Um, which is not a great thing for the dogs, um, and their training, but it's, it kind of is what it is, and we're just forced to adapt.
0: Yeah, my my law enforcement dog uh, was really uh, in in utilized in that way. Where uh, if I apprehended somebody in a building or at a in a field, as soon as I arrived, that person usually surrendered. Wow. And they they weren't going to fight the dog. No. The only time I ever had vice uh, situations were in. Riots uh, when during the American Indian Movement riots, and in uh, bar fights where we'd get a lot of -of out-of-state hunters in, and they would just drink all night, and then (laughs) get fights. And when the other officers would show up, they would get it. There just wasn't enough officers to handle the the number of hunters that were in there. So, they would call me in, and once I went in, ironically, there would be. Drunk people that'd be willing to take on a German Shepherd and wasn't the smartest thing they ever did, but uh,
1: or life choice,
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the, my dog did get some bites in during those periods, but but uh, normal law enforcement, building searches, those kind of things, they they usually surrendered pretty quick, so that was kind of nice. Uh, you you had mentioned that uh, you would go in and out of a dog, you would handle a dog and then maybe pass him off for a while. Did I understand that correctly
1: so when i was a when I ended up as a trainer, yes um but the dog that I had um that I was gonna deploy with and end up with that staph infection and um I was taking off that dog and put back on him because of a shoulder surgery and going through the Emory leadership school and stuff like that. Right. So that was kind of a weird outlying situation. Um, and then after that, I, you know, it's going to separate. I was in the process of it. And when I came back, I got on Frankie. Um, and that was, uh, my first dog mushy was a mal Frankie was a chef. Um, and I had him basically for two years. Um, and I kind of picked up um, due, to, due to the needs of the Air Force. Let's say I came back from my deployment. This is why I lost Frankie. I came back from my deployment um, and I had, it was a very, very rough time. Um, when I was deployed, my, my dog, Mushy, um, that I had previously, um, I got to adopt him in December of that that previous year so two months prior to me leaving on that deployment um with Frankie and then I left in beginning of February and then he passed in March of liver cancer so while I was deployed my wife had to put him down it was a horrible thing um and then I got back and my kennel master was like hey uh you're losing Frankie now you have to pick up Carl which was a, a drug dog and I was like, great. I literally just lost both my dogs in a course of like four months. And um, I picked up Caro because they needed another bomb team to deploy. And so it's like, well, I just got back. I'm undeployable. So yeah, I just have to forefront my dog, give him up to somebody who can take him out and deploy. And that's that's why they don't care about the hangler team so much as they did. Like, you know, big air force needs a dog team. You can't go. So now you're switching to a drug dog. And that's why that change happened. Um, and then quite honestly, I don't even think Frankie deployed, um, with that new handler, um, for whatever the reason was, whether it, the deployment was reclammed at the center or they were just a, a horrible pairing. I know he went through a couple handlers that he just could not perform with or, or vice versa. They couldn't use him. And he was a fantastic dog. He still is.
0: And, um, why couldn't you deploy again right away just Uh, so when you get back from a
1: deployment you have a six-month dwell counter that goes to where you can't be sent to a short tour you can't deploy i mean there's a waiver for everything um but they weren't offering that or they weren't going to truthfully i didn't want to deploy again anyways i just got back um i had a son who was three months old when i left um and so i'd already missed the first you know, really six, nine months of his life. And I didn't want to um, miss anymore, but it wasn't an option. They just basically said like, you can't deploy. So you're coming off this dog and you're getting on this drug dog. And Caro at the time was a dog that I absolutely couldn't stand. I just didn't like his personality, his quirks, his whatever. Um, I didn't want to work a narcotics dog, um, but I learned to, to really, really along great with him um and he performed awesome with me the handler before him honestly didn't have uh that person was with him for a year with zero fines um and i had i think six fines with him in like a month and a half which doesn't sound like much but you know on an air force base the vast majority of people aren't using drugs or whatever it was it was pretty good at least at the time um and we performed great together, and we got along great, and I really, really liked him. Um, and then for whatever reason, um, I don't remember why we played musical chairs with dogs again, but um, I ended up going back to Frankie, which was awesome. Um, and I had him for a little while longer up until um, I moved up into the trainer spot. And then at that point, I I continued to work other dogs, um, whether it was they needed fixing or there wasn't a handler for them um, or, you know, just whatever, whatever the reason was, I worked almost every dog in our kennel, I think, maybe except one
0: and we You're had our Correct. Like right. Yeah. It's a, it's a lot uh, different scenario. I, every dog I had, I had the entire term I was at the base, which was usually a year. Uh, uh, Ellsworth was a little longer than that. Cause that was, I would come home from Vietnam, and I had about two years left to go. So I I worked that dog for about a year and a half, and then he died. Um, on post one night, we were walking snow, and there were bombers doing touch and goes, and they were dropping a lot of JP-4, and he was licking the snow. And uh, next thing I noticed, he couldn't walk very well, and then he couldn't walk at all. I called the kennel master to come out and get us. He was a new guy. He had just transferred from the Army to the Air Force. He thought I just wanted to get out of the 40 below temperature and come inside, so he wouldn't come get me. And by the time I got into the kennels about 6 o'clock that morning, my dog was pretty well out of it. Uh, I wanted to call the vet. He refused to wait until 8 o'clock in the morning, uh, so we didn't work the colonel up too early. And by then, the dog was dead. And uh, they did an autopsy and determined that the JP4 had eaten through his intestines and stomach wall, and the acids killed me. But um, I ended up getting furious with the kennel master, and I went over a desk. and Thank God, my uh, sergeant from Vietnam was the security police uh, squadron uh, commander, and he kept me from going to jail. <laughs> so I managed to, to finish my last six months. Uh, Actually, as an intruder, I, I, they used me to uh, break into certain areas to see how uh, penetration would impact the uh, security forces. So I did that last six months rather nice, and then went into law enforcement after that. So it was really nice, and then started the first canine unit in Rapid City, which uh, brings up a couple of questions for me for you. Uh, number one, uh, where did you go overseas? And what were your duties there versus what they were in the States? So I went
1: to Ali Asalim, which is Kuwait. It's like the main hub over there. Um, Into like the AORs, that in Qatar. And honestly, what I did stateside and what I did deployed, there was virtually no difference. It was hotter over there. There was a lot more sandstorms, but and the work schedule sucked. We were doing, you know, three in ones, 13 hours a day. And so it was a little rough in that regards. Um, but the mission itself wasn't any different. Um, we would do the, uh, the vehicle search pit, search pit, trap area, whatever you want to call it. Um, we'd kind of do rotations. Um, we would do like one day there, one day in on patrol, one day there, one day in on patrol, we'd just go back and forth. And, um, you know, when you're doing the search pit, they'd Fill up the the uh, the bay with trucks. Get everybody out of there. You'd run through them and go back into your little shack and just wait for the next, you know, surge to come through. When we we're doing the patrol side of it, um, like like at a state side, it's almost all presence patrols. You're out on foot. You know, we don't get to just drive and wait around in our car all day. That's not how canines are utilized. Um, so. It'd be a lot of walking patrols, whether it be perimeter or, um, in and around like the BX or the BX area, um, or they'd have you do random, um, vehicle sweeps at checkpoints throughout the base at any given time, you know, that's all going to be set up randomly. Um, and then in the course of that day, you're pretty much trained at least once or twice a day, you should be um they have a military trainer and that base also has a civilian trainer as well um he's a retired match sergeant he's still there to this day i think he's been there for pushing 10 years <laughs> and um he good likes good money he likes his northrop money yeah it's uh, just actually he sent me a video of my dog deployed there um frankie deployed there with a current handler a month or two ago and seeing the same issues that he had when Um, when I had him. And, you know, I've seen a lot of season handlers who were like, oh, I can fix any dog. I can do this. I can do that. It's like, knock yourself out. Like most people will be reluctant to give their dog away to somebody else. But like, I know my dog, he was fantastic. Um, He was extremely intelligent and his really real deficiency, if any, was his outing the reward only on, um, well, it was actually all the time. It was it was detection or just doing obedience, which was a real big hindrance to advancing a dog. Um, but it'd be like bite work, he'd come right off. He didn't care. I mean, that should be the most fun ever. Um, and he absolutely understands, you know, the out and what it means, and he would be setting it down slowly. He'd look at you, kind of like cock a smile and pull his head up, and it's like, game on, dude. And he was a type of dog. It sucked that you really needed to like baseball swing his correction to him. And he'd still be like, I'm good. You got more. Um, so aside from that, I mean, he was, he was amazing. And that trainer sent me a video of him like, Hey, I'm still working with your dog two years later, or three years later. Um, but you know, <laughs> moving forward from there, um, the the mission was almost the same we were also able um for a while i don't know if they still do it but they would send us on um a little four day i don't i wanna want to come with tdy but a little four-day mission every couple of weeks we would go to um kcia which is the main airport there in kuwait and um we would work the the vehicle search pit on that side of it which was for um the 387th that's out there because um alias salim is the 386 So we just worked for that detachment basically or that squadron and um stayed there for four days um work and then head on back to you know the main base but that was it it was basically just search pit presence patrols walking patrols everywhere
0: um a what little at night then or during the day i'm sorry did you patrol at night or during the day?
1: No. So unfortunately I didn't get the night shift. We definitely had guys that, that did it. I mean, it was 24 hour ops, um, you know, 365. I just was, you know, blessed enough to get it when it was always really hot and sunny. Um, <laughs> so, um, but yes, there was, there was a 19. Um, they just didn't, uh, I won't want to say they were utilized any less, um, but there wasn't as much going on for obvious reasons. You know, everything shuts down at night, so um, the vehicle traffic is slower, and you know, you can be out there walking, but nobody's there to see you. Um, and it really depends on that handler. Like, are they truly calling it in? I mean, are they just calling it in, or are they out there walking? You know, nobody's there to police them or to tell. And it shows in a lot of in a lot of teams when people aren't that. And that's it's the same thing stateside. Um, you know, somebody will call in their patrol and just go sleep somewhere, you know, hiding out because they can. And it's three o'clock in the morning and there's nobody around. Um,
0: so, which is ironic because that we worked only at night and uh, we were given a post, usually about uh, a half mile in length and, uh, and then maybe 150, 200 yards deep. And we were right on the wire. So that was our mission was to keep anybody from getting in that particular area. The only backup we had if we ran into conflict, which happened fairly regularly, somebody would take a shot at us or something, um, we used a couple of techniques. One was uh, we'd call in a, a time check. If our dog alerted, that alerted the two handlers on either side that you had an alert and they would start to close in on your perimeter so that they could support you if they had to. And the other thing was just clicking the radio to let people know that something was going on. And then again, they would kind of close in to give you support. Uh, it wasn't until probably 1971 or two that they started uh, uh, support strike teams, which were additional handlers and dogs that would be in a Jeep. And if you got an alert that strike team would come out and back you up, you know, open that uh, perimeter a little wider. As you, you well know if the wind's coming at you at a pretty strong rate, you got a pretty narrow cone, mm-hmm. additional handlers is a benefit, but it isn't always nice enough to have wind coming at you. It could be coming from your back, which does you no good right. or from your side. So uh, there's a lot of different scenarios and, it, to me, uh, and this is really why I'm interested in what you have to say, because the evolution is so different from what we did to what you do. Even Monty, who I just shared with you about, because of his length of service, he went from being a pure sentry dog handler, he trained dogs in drugs and currency, and he, he would search aircraft coming in and out of the base for drugs. He would uh, search the medic barracks for drugs, uh, their vehicles. So it sounds like it was a lot different in your time than it was from the 70s and the early 80s, which is, again, very interesting. So when you came back uh, from overseas, did you uh, go into training then? Is that when you became a trainer? Or were you a trainer before you went over? So I had already went
1: to the trainer course before I went, um, but I wasn't being utilized as a trainer yet. Um, It wasn't until... um, Probably... I got back in July of 18. I don't think I became the trainer until... The following year, sometime in nineteen. Um, I think that's when it was but I mean to kind of hit on what you said uh, previously we would still do that same thing I mean we're not going to go searching medical barracks or anything like that um, if the squadron or wing leadership or somebody thinks that there's a reason that security forces needs to do like dorm inspections or something like that they will um, bring out the dogs and they'll, you know kind of do um, do a search like that if needed, but typically we're just working. Um, it'd be more like a random like vehicle hit, um, whether it's at the, uh, at like the main gate or one of the, one of the gates on, on the installation um, or you'd be working with uh, OSI um, and, you know, they've been running Intel and, um, on a, on a person of interest suspect, whatever for, you know, weeks or months or whatever. And they're like, Hey, like we've, we've, pretty sure this guy has this on him like let's go sweep his car or let's go to his location or um without like true probable cause you can't just walk up and single out his vehicle so it's like cool don't tell me where his car is that just put me in the parking lot and i'm just gonna i'm just gonna do a uh um just a, a walking patrol or you know in the parking lot and i'm gonna hit every one of them and then sure enough if the dog just stops and alerts on his trunk and then you know, there you go. That's all the probable cause that OSI needs at that point to, to further take their investigation and and hook the guy up and, um, bring on charges. So that kind of stuff does happen. Um, it's more of on the narcotic side, the most common thing you're going to get is, um, one of the, one of the patrol, not even a patrol, but just one of the, um, gay guards are going to call something in like, you know, they, they caught the smell of marijuana. I mean, granted it's legal almost everywhere, but it's still not on base or not in service. Um, so at that point we'd, you know, go up there, walk around the car and the dog is almost guaranteed to alert. And then we're going to go through the car and find whatever we're going to find. Um, sometimes you'll get lucky, um, and get it when you're not even doing that. My largest find was just shy of two pounds. Um, which doesn't seem like all that much, but that's, um that was a lot for here and it was still under the legal limit for arizona for personal consumption which is insane (laughs) and so ultimately we we called um uh, tucson pd to to come get it and they basically said well it's under the limit we don't really care about it but the guy didn't have his medical card so they're like we're just going to throw it away and they gave him a summons to appear in court and went about their day um but I just happened to get that responding to something else. And my dog alerted to the smell in a parking lot and just beeline to his car that was open, jumped in it and he couldn't find a lot. He couldn't find to save his life, but the car was so saturated. Um, the guy's like, uh, I have weed in there. I was like, uh, no shit. Like, <laughs> all right, dude, like, <laughs> like, let's, let's go. Like, cause yeah, I was actually talking with that guy when he, pulled me quite a few car spaces over um, and just jumped in this car. And so it was was a good find. It was fun, though.
0: So it sounds like a little bit of your duty in the service was similar to what maybe Custom Border Patrol would do. I wouldn't
1: say so, no. Um, Maybe on, like, a port of entry when they are Searching uh, searching vehicles or, you know, potentially, I guess... Um, when you're driving through a checkpoint, you know, if they feel like there's reason to search vehicles, they will, or they're just doing random things, hoping to get lucky. Yes, we absolutely do that. Um, but that's, that's kind of, I think, where our similarities would end. Um, we would go to, um, and it changes. It could change day by day, week by week, but um, we go every day to the, to the main like, commercial gate here on base um and we spend you know at least a couple hours every day up there whether it was with an explosive dog or a narcotic dog it didn't matter um and we'd run through the vehicles there hoping to um hoping to find something and um every now and then you an alert whether it be you know depending on what kind of dog you have one of them you call osi or sf investigations and the other you call eod we've had it go both ways um probably one of the most it was a real a real explosive find but um completely justified and um nothing was really present um but there was guys you know mining out here is is a big deal and one of the guys is working on like blasting over there at the mines just happened to have basically like uh, i don't know if it was tnt or dynamite but just saturated his his clothing and the dog alerted like right away to the seat and you know it was a good find. Like it absolutely was that residual there, although it wasn't technically there. And we don't train our dogs on explosive residual, but you know, still didn't stop EOD from coming out and searching the whole vehicle and bringing the robots and their 70 pound suits. Um, drugs is a little bit easier and a little bit faster and cleaner. You don't have to shut down the planet to, to find that. Um, but I mean, we just utilize them in normal LE capabilities for the most part. Um, and then just kind of handle it accordingly depending on what type of dog you're at. Deployed, you can do a Gulf state deployment like I did where your mission doesn't really change. Um, Or they would have the, you know, outside the wire missions that you might find um, in Iraq or Afghanistan when, you know, we were still there and actively running stuff where um, my old dog, I said he was at a combat outpost in I forgot exactly where it was at. But you can just be assigned to, like, some sort of uh, – it could be an Army team, Navy, whatever, an SF team that maybe doesn't have a dog support, and you're just there to, you know, catch quarters running out of a building, and you're sending your dog, and you're almost utilized ex- you know, exclusively for patrol. Um, or you can be the team that's clearing the building of a known bomb maker, and it, it can go either way. It just depends on if you're lucky enough to get – that deployment or if you got my deployment um and i know obviously it's it's kind of naive and stupid for you know m- me to say that having an easy deployment but a big part of me um i like i feel kind of robbed of the experience of you know developing that bond and brotherhood that you will when whether it's taking um, indirect fire or doing true outside of wire missions um, Something that adds a little bit of adventure and spice to a deployment, more so than you know, just being separated from your family and your loved ones and being stuck in worse than worse environments, doing the exact same job. It's kind of.
0: Did you did you experience any rocket attacks or nothing? There was
1: not a single day of IDF that came over um, there. Kuwait was, at least at that time, extremely safe. Um, wrong with that there's nothing wrong with that and that is a little naive a little stupid but at the same time kind of wish for a different experience um i would have loved to have gone to bagram um but that that wasn't in the cards um and truthfully i don't think anything different would have happened i just would have you know heard the alarm and saw a c-ram going off and shooting you know red lines in outer space which would have been cool um but they weren't really doing the outside-of-wire missions anyway, so nothing really would have been any different. Um.
0: Our son went over to uh, Iraq. He was at Talil Air Force Base, and uh, they got right. He wanted to go so bad because Dad had been in Vietnam, and he wanted to go to Iraq. My dad was in uh, combat over in the Pacific, and uh, once he got there, he was there about three, four or five days and they had their first rocket attack. And then he called me after that, which you couldn't do from any other war zone that I've ever been familiar with. But he's like, you know, maybe, maybe I jumped at just too quick <laughs>
1: and give it some real thought. <laughs> but
0: uh uh yep, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, it uh it it has changed his life, that that's for sure. So Cody what what would you say was probably in your time in the service uh the most memorable for you what what would you consider
1: like any individual experience or yeah, just
0: other? something that really impacted you that you remember
1: I definitely um when I was set to deploy with Mushy the first time when he got that staff infection um that was an eye opening experience um Almost, I mean, you can relate to having lost your dog. Um, I didn't lose him until after he was already retired. Um, but it was it was very touch and go the, um, the first few days. Um, I think at one point he had 8 or 12 pounds worth of edema, so swelling and just fluid buildup in his body. Um, he, his face was so swollen, he literally looked like a bear. Um, and, uh, he was in really rough shape. And then I spent probably not exaggerating, probably 12 to 15 hours a day, initially the first, you know, like seven days a week for the first few weeks, um, at the, at the clinic with him, I had my own key card. I just came and went as I pleased. Um, and, uh, I got a really great relationship with the staff down there, um, they learned to love my dog. Like they never needed to sedate him for anything other than when he actually went into surgery. Um, he was, he was a dog that you would use for all of your demonstrations and your bite work because he was just, he was an 84 pound heavy hitting male. That was just literally tear you to pieces or he would be that 80 pound lap dog. And, um, he could very, very easily determine and differentiate the two. And, um, the staff loved him. Um, it was a, it was a pretty, pretty happening experience. Um, at first it was very hard and then it was very gratifying to realize that he was gonna be fine and pull through. Um, the deployment was great to say like, you know, I I've served, like I actually did something a little more meaningful than just staying stateside my entire career, um, but pretty uneventful also. Um, but I loved the dog that I was with. Um, I still do. I joked to my wife about, um, adopting him here pretty soon. Um, and not knowing that I will be able to or not. Um, but he's, he's getting up there in age and, um, you know, she knew him, the kids knew him. He was an amazing dog. And, um, And she, we had a random stray that we picked up here two years ago on New Year's Eve. And plus the other dog that we caught. she's like, we're not doing three dogs. That's not happening. But with him, I got to do, um, my secret service missions going to do the, uh, the UN general assembly. I did that a couple of times, random missions to, to Aspen or to, you know, LA here, there, whatever. Um, and that was some really good times I had there. Um, But if I had to say the one that I I learned the most with or was the most impactful, um, I learned how to be a dog medic pretty quick when um, that whole issue with the staph infection happened. And that was challenging at first and then great at the end. So that probably be it.
0: Yeah, I think putting a dog down is is probably the the biggest challenge when you when you have an animal that, you know, has your back and then you got to put him down and. When the one in Texas, uh, after we put him down, um, I had to be there for the autopsy to do to do that. And the second in in South Dakota, when they put him down, uh, he actually died prior to that. But then I had to stay for the autopsy. I I just thought that was kind of tough, you know. To hate to lose a family member and then say, "Well, you got to stay here, and we're going to do an autopsy."
1: You couldn't pay me to watch them tear apart my dog piece by piece. I would absolutely refuse. Um, When we had to put Mushy down, I was supposed to be at work at like 6 a.m. that morning and I called the cam and said, I'm not coming in right away. Um, And it was night here, but you know, morning there. And I was just a a ball of sobbing mush on the floor. Like I couldn't do it. Like I put him down via FaceTime. So I got to see him and be with him or whatever. but it was it was a very rough, rough experience, and I know um, I don't know if you've I don't think you've had Bill Cummings on your um, your show, but I know you know Bill. Um, so Bill was there, all the all the handlers, the kennel master, everybody was there, um, and so he definitely. My wife was there. The kids were asleep. They had no idea what happened. Um, but uh, so I know he went out loved and Bill was there to put the uh you know the coin underneath his chest and like he went out with honors for sure but it was still unbelievably difficult and then the uh the vet tech at the time even though he he was retired she's like told my wife Nadine I got this like basically took him had him cremated and you know gave him back and so he sits on the mantle to this day so
0: yeah that that's 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 something you don't ever forget either is having to put the dog down. Uh, when I left law enforcement uh, to move down the farm, my dog had gotten hip dysplasia pretty bad. And uh, in the back of the squad car at night, he would get a little squirrely where he'd come up and lay his head on my shoulder and just growl in my ear. And you could tell he was in a lot of pain, but uh, I just was glad he didn't take my ear with him when he was angry about it. But yeah. before I left, I had to, to put him down and that. I hated that. those. Those incidents never leave, uh, especially, you know, he went through riots with me and, and body searches, and um, it was uh, challenging to have to lose him. Is uh, is there anything that I've not?
1: I mean, unless you want to know about differences in terms of, I mean, when you went through and you guys were just literally training land sharks um, versus going through and like the evolution and like when they're doing protocol, I, I don't know what type of detection you were doing when you were um, elite on that aspect of it, but you know they went through protocol. So inverted V walking in front of your dogs to um, DFR. So you had the deferred final response um, and now they're using CST. So clear signals training, which is more or less just a slightly modified version of DFR. Um, but I mean, the way we would do it here Um, we have advanced all these dogs to the point where they are all off-leash capable at this base. Um, Not all dogs are like that. Um, And especially when you are working an explosive dog, I don't want to be anywhere near that dog when he, you know, finds an IED somewhere. Um, But so the differences there and how that's changed, I think could probably be um, the biggest advancement in terms of like canine or not advancement so much as like how it's really changed um and the training involved in that um, if you have questions i'd be happy to answer if not then i think
0: Any, did you guys use video cameras at all uh
1: not in the aspect i think of how you're um how you're referring we have used some even if it was just a, a cell phone you know to to kind of run play by uh like play by play at the end like this is how you're training problem went you know and you can look at it and be like oh man i messed up here I, I knew that or oh i didn't clear the area i thought i did um i uh, he's the km now he's about he's getting ready to leave but we had a always good moment where he was giving me all this crap like you didn't search us your dog misses aid it's you know it's it's your fault your fault your fault and then i'm like all right josh go go play the video and sure enough like my presentation was there my dog put his nose in there and he missed it he's like oh you're right like that was definitely your dog just kind of crapped the bed um but so sometimes it was helpful but it wasn't something that we use on a regular basis um we have you know walked around with like a gopro on our chest to to film and but it's it's not common Uh, i know when you're training or making training videos for something you might but Again, not something you do on a regular basis.
0: Still using a six-foot uh, leash?
1: Or I mean, initially, the, the six-foot has its place. I, mean, I don't want to be anywhere near that six-foot when I'm doing detection. Um, but if you needed it for um, doing a walking patrol, you're, you're walking through the, the BX or um, through the wing building or somewhere, just showing your presence. Yes, your dog is on a six-foot. Um, just walking, basically, and you know, and a heel. Um, but when it comes to, um, doing any other patrols, like if I was doing large areas, like here at DM, we have a, a large gated area. Um, they have a lot of like classified stuff that happens, but it's very wide open. My, my best friend there is either A, I'm running off leash or B, I'm going to use a retractable, you know, a 26 foot retractable. And I'll just hook it to a D ring on my belt and just walk around. And my dog is free to search or do whatever they want and you know if he misses an area bring him back like hey check over here and then he would do that
0: now we we had the six foot leash we used for everything so if we would have ran into an explosive we would have been six feet from it um not a good (laughs) yeah not a good spot to be like a trip wire those kind of things would have probably been our biggest uh challenges and then if we were doing uh tracking then we had a lot longer leash so uh but he he never was off leash um they just weren't trained for that because they probably once they realized they were off leash they had probably left us yeah i
1: i mean i think your mission just was so different where you didn't have to worry i mean If you were to encounter a bomb, chances are at six feet, like neither one of you guys are coming home. Would that be better if your dog was, you know, thirty feet in front of you? Absolutely, you're coming home. Your dog, unfortunately, is not. Um, But I mean, we're not out there hunting people anymore. As as that's the sole purpose of our deployment. How how you were, um, we're out there looking almost solely for explosives, and even that is kind of died down as all the conflicts are. Kind of dying down um
0: so how long have you been out now um
1: i have been off active duty for two years i'm still doing the reserve thing and i will run that till i hit 20 and then retire on the reserve side
0: so do you still work out at the base then i do
1: yeah
0: Ah, uh, uh, no uh so
1: up until the last two week tour that I did, um, a few months ago. Um, I was a- always utilized for, for training, whether it be just squadron, if they're doing active shooter training, you know, I could be, um, like, like an observing cadre or I can be, you know, a panicked person. Oh, they're running, they're shooting, you know, pop out of people, we'll see if I get shot sort of thing. Um, which has definitely happened. <laughs> and, um, um, uh, but if they weren't doing that, I would just tell the two civilian guys who are, you know, retired Air Force and retired Pima County sheriffs or whatever that, um, hey, I'm I'm gonna go down to the kennels if you have nothing for them. and they would just all right, man, see you later, bye. And uh, I'd go down there, and the the staff that's there now for the most part is is newer. I don't know most of them, but um, I did know everybody there for a long time, and they knew my capabilities and my um, knowledge with the dogs and everything else and they would still let me you know run training problems and plant aids and check things out and it was a lot of fun um but this last time they were short uh so shorthanded they're like you're you're just a dude on the road like see you later bye and all right i'm hoping when i go back next month because i have to know there a couple weeks in january um that that's passed and i can go play with dogs again but we'll see it just depends
0: uh, we, would, we went after A bunch of us handlers went out there from Vietnam and took those guys to lunch and let them tell the stories. And of course, we shared some of our stories. It was kind of fun. Uh, Bill was responsible for that connection. So he got us all out there and stuff. Um, I I think it's great. I I want to I give you I, uh, a couple of days ago, I went to a career and war uh, association uh, Christmas party. Uh, I felt like a little kid there because everybody was ninety and older. But they had a an army lieutenant uh, from Korea uh, that was there who had been uh, in the Korean conflict, and he was ninety, and he spoke, and showed Korea from nineteen forty to two thousand ten, and the the changes that they went through, and how appreciative of it he was. Uh, uh, the veterans that were there. But he said something at the end that I think all of us who have been in a foreign country um, could use in the future, if not uh, just here. He said, uh, you, you went to a country you didn't know to help with people you never met. And we can't tell you how much good you did and how much we appreciate what you did. And I thought that was pretty, you know, Vietnam today, is an amazing growing country. And who knows what Iraq or Afghanistan will turn into. You know, we just look at Japan, you know, Europe. uh, Everywhere we have been in conflict, uh, they they really come, you know, at the time Korea was broke and the poorest country in the world. And today it's number five. And two of those things that made it that way is Hyundai. and samsung <laughs> but they're they look like new york city and Seoul today versus what it used to look like so i thought that was a good comment
1: i it it definitely is um and it it kind of goes to the heart of even a um even an uneventful deployment like mine like he he still served you still did your part you you know i didn't know what i was getting. i could have easily been shot at or lost my life or done something you know Odds of that weren't very high there, but it has nothing to do with the fact that um, I didn't go or anybody, you know, like who's upset with their lack of action that they got. Like you, you still did your part. You know, you had no idea what you were going to encounter, or what you weren't going to encounter.
0: Yeah. I had a Vietnam dog handler who had to go through therapy because he never was in conflict. And he said, I felt guilty coming home that I never participated in a conflict over there. I said, I wouldn't think he would felt damn good about it. <laughs> it's amazing how it impacts people. So yeah, uh, yeah it, we all went, we all did our job. Even, you know, I, I talked to a lot of veterans who never served overseas and they seem to forget, we need the guy who sends over the ammo and the food, you know, all of those Pertinent items that we need to have while we're over there. Uh, So we need somebody back here to do that. And uh, we do appreciate everything they do, no matter uh, who they serve. My little brother during the Vietnam era never went. And uh, he was always apologizing. I said, Why are you, you served? You were in security police. You did your job. You protected bases here in the States. That's what counted. So you don't owe anybody an apology. Cody, thank you Uh, a great deal. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Uh, I know it was kind of a challenge in the beginning, but
1: you got a good, it's a good evolution. Timing wasn't our friends. And part of that was my fault for sure.
0: (laughs) And thank you for listening to the War Dogs podcast and Cody Rulett's great uh, evolution story. Uh, I want to remind you to not forget to subscribe. Uh, to wherever you listen to the podcast and leave a review as I always enjoy the feedback and have a great uh, day.